Greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line today. We wanted to get another program in uh, this week uh, that makes four for one week. Uh, just letting you know, yesterday's program is now up. It had been blocked globally uh, by the algorithm on both YouTube and Facebook uh, due to the fact that we played music. And it, it's understandable. It's natural. I actually, um, you know, John Cooper's uh, folks that take care of that kind of thing got in touch with me. They got it taken care of fairly quickly. I think we're still on Facebook, still uh, blocked on that one, but it'll eventually be there as well. Um, and I did ask them, I said, in the future, is there a way we can sort of preemptively get around this? And they seem to feel like they, in the future, if we sort of planned it, we might might be able to get around it. We'll see. But it's, hey, it's it's for Skillet's protection. I mean, there are lots of people that would just live, scre- live stream everything uh, for free if they could get hold of it. And um, that's sort of the end of everybody's uh, ability to <laughs> produce stuff. Um, so I, I get it. But uh, the interview with uh, John Cooper is now up and available from yesterday. I appreciate all the positive feedback we got from that. Everybody seemed to enjoy it, especially Daryl Harrison. Um, in Omaha uh, at Just Thinking, Virgil Walker, uh, they seemed to really enjoy the fact that uh, John was wearing their hat. And I, I guess we need a hat now. So uh, if, we, if we make an Alpha Mega hat again, we've had them in the past. I mean, decades. That's true. That's true. Uh, so we'll have to you know, have a hat, some hats made. And, and send uh, you know send send one off to, to John and uh, then he'll then he can do the Just Thinking podcast wearing our hat. <laughs> that seems to be that seems to be fair. I think, anyways. But yeah. Anyway, uh, start off. We're going to be talking about the Immaculate Conception today. If you have Roman Catholic friends and and family and things like that, this will be one that you're going to want to really uh, tune in on. But before that, I want to talk about uh, the. Dr. Raphael Gamaliel Warnock portion of the Lewis funeral yesterday. Uh, Dr. Warnock is the senior pastor of the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church, the spiritual home of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Dr. Warnock appeared um at the funeral yesterday, and he made a huge splash by one particular portion of what he said. Now, you need to understand that if you understand black liberation theology, if you understand James Cone, if you understand Union Theological Seminary, this is what you would expect. This is, but, but what it's, what it is is it has caught people because I've sat how many hours have I sat here in this very studio and in fact I remember the first time I did this um, th- we weren't doing video the walls were white uh, there was a we, for years we had a, a bookcase in that corner that was a prototype for my real bookcases and it was just propped up in the corner could have fallen over at any second uh, it was I, mean, I was tilted. It was terrible, but we didn't have video, so who cared? Um, but I remember in 2008 sitting in this room and reading from James Cone. So it's been at least 12 years 
that we have been speaking about James Cone, who passed away, I believe it was last year or the year before last. And black liberation theology and the concepts associated thereto, and basically saying this is not Christianity. It it utilizes Christian language, but it is a fundamentally different concept than the historic Christian faith. And this is what is taught at Union Theological Seminary. If you've not followed a lot of my tweets and things like that, Union I call Union Theological Seminary the Walker Seminary. It, it apostatized before the year 1900, and yet it's still going. So it's, it's like, uh, it, it'd be like if uh, we were on the 200th season of The Walking Dead. Now, I've, I've, I stopped walking. I stopped, stopped walking. I stopped, I stopped walking as a walker. I stopped watching The Walking Dead quite some time ago, but it always crossed my mind. Shouldn't the walkers be looking worse and worse with each passing? Uh, you know, I mean, they do. they do? Well, there can't be anything of them left by now. I mean, there, there must be like just body parts all just laying around all over the place because everything was falling off as it was. So that's that's Union Theological Seminary, uh, it, but it keeps moving. It's it's still rattling around. It's nothing but a skeleton, but it, it keeps rattling around. Well, he's a graduate of of, uh, of Union, and Cone taught at Union, and that makes perfect sense. You can teach anything at Union. There's doctrine. <laughs> The only doctrine at Union Theological Seminary is that the one doctrine you can't believe is what historic Christianity has ever believed. That's, that's about the only doctrinal standard at Union Theological Seminary. So at the funeral, this guy starts talking, and as you'll see, he takes Isaiah 53 and applies it to Congressman Lewis instead of to Jesus. And people are – well, first of all, there's been a number of people that – Nah, he probably wasn't. No, he didn't do that. No, he did. It's it's plain and obvious. There's no question. Don't even try to get around it. That's exactly what he did. And it is perfectly consistent. Perfectly consistent with black liberation theology. How does James Cone say that God is black? That Jesus was black? Um, that we are that that you are to try to black people to rejoice in their blackness, so on and so forth. It's not just a skin color, though it's never completely disconnected from that. For Cone, God is the God of the sufferers. He is the God of the oppressed. And so you are like Jesus when you were oppressed. Congressman Lewis was beaten and was oppressed. Therefore, Congressman Lewis is like Jesus, and therefore, by his stripes, America is healed. So it, it follows, logically, if you understand the wildly and grossly racist and, and unbiblical categories of James Cone, and his now extremely popular, influential offspring throughout the black religious community, um, Makes It makes perfect sense what he was saying and why he said it. But the vast majority of us still, it still you know, just grabs you and you just go, what? Um, seriously? 
but it's consistent with with cone. So let's just take a look at it. This is so, this is really low resolution. This, this is going to look bad unless you like keep it down the bottom or something like that. But um, here's uh, here's the section that uh, got everybody all in a tizzy and, and appropriately so. I'm not saying I'm not saying there's an excuse for this. I'm just simply explaining to you that there's a background to this. It's not like he just decided, oh, this doesn't sound good. I think this, I'll throw out some just rank, horrific, offensive heresy. No, this is, this is black liberation theology. This is James Cone. So here, here we go. We celebrate Don Lewis. He was wounded for America's transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. So let's remember him today and let's recommit tomorrow to standing together and fighting together and voting together and standing up on behalf of truth and righteousness together. So there you have, uh, by his stripes, we are healed because he was oppressed. And God is the God of the oppressed and only the God of the oppressed. So if he was oppressed, then we can apply this passage to him. It, it is the religion of wokeness. Um, it, it should cause us to just stop and go, oh my goodness, how could anyone do that? Uh, and the number of people, it is astonishing how many people are uh, defending what he had to say. Defending what he said. By the way, I'm not going to be watching Twitter today at all because the, the net is bad. I don't. I do not understand how this works. Yesterday we went for an hour and fifteen minutes, John Cooper and flawless. Just well, I guess there was one slight dropout one, but we did great and we had the Zoom stuff going. And today it's it's a roller coaster all over the place, and we've already done all the resetting that we can and stuff. I, I don't know. Sunspots, aliens. I, I I have no idea. But that's extremely distracting to me. To, to know that we're on, we're off, we're on, we're off, and, and so I won't be watching Twitter because that way I won't know, and we'll just have to upload this when we get a chance to upload it. And yeah. So um, anyway, just wanted to comment upon that because a lot of people were, were talking about it. You know, I just straightforward said this is blasphemous. It is, but you're not allowed to say that. Um, blasphemy itself can is now a protected form of speech as long as it is racially appropriate blasphemy. That's where we are. That's, that's where we are. And it will not be long before uh, YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are enforcing those theological uh, standards upon the rest of us. You, you, I, hopefully by now, you've realized that the stuff that you thought was tin hat stuff for me, you're now experiencing yourself, so it wasn't tin hat stuff to begin with. And that's coming for us as well. So, again, while it is day, let us work, for the night is coming when no man can work. And that is a biblical uh, truth and biblical reality. Uh, okay, so I wanted um, to do something. It, it's been... I think, a decade since I did my last debate on 
the Immaculate Conception. I've done a number of debates. We debated up at the University of Utah with Jerry Matitix. Uh, we did Marian debates with Jerry uh, on Long Island as well. Uh, I debated Christopher Ferrara uh, on the subject. We're going to be getting that up on YouTube. We just discovered that it was never put on YouTube. Might as well get it there while we can. Uh, give them a little something extra to have to delete uh, in the not-too-distant future. But um, the audio is up on YouTube. And is the audio on Sermon Audio? No, it, we didn't. That one fell, fell through the cracks. Fell through the cracks. So, um, uh, and it's interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll have time to remember to link to it, but during that particular debate with Christopher Ferrara, uh, he interestingly used a fake Augustine quote. He didn't know. I'm not accusing him of knowingly doing it. It's just there's such a long history, such a long history of Roman Catholicism using fraudulent church history sources, made-up uh, citations. Uh, the donation of Constantine, the pseudo-Isidorian decretals. Just look up the history of these things. There, there's literally thousands of alleged statements by early church writers um, that Rome has utilized to define doctrine and dogma, that just complete fakes. And we know that today, um, but the, the theology that was built upon those fakes continues. And the reality is the majority of believers don't know where to go to look things up. Sometimes there are, there are still many, many, many untranslated volumes of, for example, Origins works that have not yet appeared in, uh, in English. We just found, what was it, an Armenian manuscript uh, that has, um, who was that? Was that Chrysostom? There was a, a commentary on Hebrews. It was just discovered from a, an important early, uh, early writer, and uh, really looking forward to, uh, to seeing that published in English eventually. Uh, I don't read Armenian. Uh, that's not Armenian, by the way. I do. I do read Armenian, just not Armenian. Um, and uh, so, but but, and even those of us who have fairly decent uh, patristic resources, uh, and not not just the thirty-eight volume Erdman set, but um, a lot of the early church fathers set uh, that's that's um, published outside of the Erdman's material and a lot of the electronic stuff and TLG CD-ROMs and uh, Patrologia Latina and, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. It, it's still challenging to track down a lot of the citations that appear in material. Cyril of Alexandria? Okay. Figured that's what you were looking up. Anyway, um, this might seem to many people to be somewhat of a esoteric topic. We're we're looking at the meltdown of the United States government, and hence uh, entering into a period of tremendous global insecurity and change, and uh, undoubtedly violence and. Um, fundamental degradation of the quality of life globally. Um, that's just the only outcome of what's going on here. Uh, whether you like it or not, this nation has been a force for stability. And uh, so you might say, that should all, that's all we should be talking about. Well, I don't know about you, but talking only about that 
brings about depression. I'm not the only person noticing all the discussions of a sharp rise in suicides and and everything else that's going on uh, in in the world right now. And the issues of the gospel do not go away just because um, there's an election coming up and one side is doing everything it can to destroy the country before the election even takes place so that they can then rule the country for the rest of time, drive it into the ground. Uh, these issues will still be relevant on November 5th, November 6th, so on and so forth. And unfortunately, especially topics that deal with church history end up being topics that are rife for abuse because most people have such a disconnect from church history from the sources of church history. And of course, I, I, if, if you're new to the program, over the years, many people have asked me, what were the classes that you took, college, Bible college, seminary, that have been the most helpful to you in doing apologetics? And I've always given the same answers, Greek and church history. Uh, Greek, Hebrew to a lesser extent, um, knowing the biblical languages, teaching the biblical languages, um, but then church history, because every cult and ism abuses church history. Every cult and ism. So the Mormons will attempt to quote from sources of church history in substantiation of their claims. Now, no one, no one in church history believed what Joseph Smith believed by any stretch of the imagination. But that won't stop people at BYU from quoting things and putting them in a completely foreign context, and how many people can then call them on it. Jehovah's Witnesses, well known for their abuse of church history. I've told a very enjoyable story uh, in the past of uh, my uh, discussion with a pioneer Jehovah's Witness on the subject of the testimony of Ignatius of Antioch to the deity of Christ and how he was just horrifically and purposely misrepresented by the Watchtower Society many years ago. I wrote a lengthy article on the subject uh, that documented this, this, this type of thing. But, but again, for most people, for most Jehovah's Witnesses, they wouldn't know where to go and they would never even have the inclination to look. When it comes to the subject of Roman Catholicism today, I find amongst non-Roman Catholics, so, you know, I could say Protestants, but I'm not sure that, that term has almost any meaning any longer. Um, it, even those who use the term don't know where it came from. They don't know the historical context of uh, the Diet of Spire in 1529 and the Holy Roman Empire and Charles V and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, and so non, non-Catholics, in other words, those who do not submit to the self-claimed authority of the Bishop of Rome. Now, there's a number of communi- communions under that. It's not just Roman Catholicism. That's sort of a blanket term that would refer to them all. But you've got Byzantine Catholics and things like that that are in communion with Rome, but want to be differentiated traditionally, liturgically, within that context. 
And then you have the Eastern Orthodox churches. And uh, there is a resurgence of interest. It, it goes in waves. I've seen this more than once. I'm old enough now to start seeing these waves as they as they go along. Um, but there's a resurgence of interest in uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy, and they have their own issues. Very very different mindset than the at least true Eastern Orthodox folks from the East. Uh, American Eastern American Eastern Orthodoxy sounds argues very much like Rome, but real Eastern Orthodoxy from the East has a very mystical mindset and and a, a, a mindset very different from those of us in the West, and therefore the, the things they even would find to be central in argumentation are not the same things that we would find to be central in argumentation. Anyway, the point is that a large majority of non-Roman Catholic, non-Eastern Orthodox, generally evangelicals, do not know where they stand in church history. They do not... uh, How many times have you seen church history classes offered, even when a church is big enough to offer... uh, Christian theology courses or, or things like ap- apologetics courses. Uh, it's very, very r- rare for people to know. And so when they encounter people from different perspectives, very often we are talking past each other and not prepared to hear what's being said. When we speak of the Marian doctrines, we are speaking of one of the most important set of doctrines and dogmas within Roman Catholicism for this one reason. If you go to heavily Roman Catholic areas, culturally Roman Catholic areas, if you go to Mexico, almost anywhere in Mexico, throughout Central America, in fact, into South America, you will find the most uh, vivid dedication to Mary, uh, the, the Virgin of Guadalupe. Y- you will find people who live their lives with the central religious character of their lives is Mary. And when you see the devotion, when you see the candles, you see the statues, you see the churches, you see the parades, the the, the processions, Um you begin to understand why the pretended distinction between hyperdulia and latria, hyperveneration and worship, just dissolves. It dissolves in those places. And Mary is plainly worshipped within those contexts. Plainly worshipped. You can, you can try to make those other arguments all you want. They, they fail biblically. They collapse biblically. Both Dulia, Duluo, and Latruo are both translations of Ahav from the Hebrew. That's just a fact. You can't get around it. You can, that's, why you, that's why Rome denies Sola Scriptura, because if you, if you apply the standard of Scripture, it falls apart. But that's the experience that many people have. The Marian doctrines, we'll call them doctrines, I'll explain between doctrine and dogma in a moment, are not only central to the experience of most Roman Catholics. There's a lot of Western Roman Catholics that diminish 
the, the centrality of the Marian dogmas. They can't technically, but they do experientially. So just as much as she is worshipped in Mexico, Germany, not so much. Um, sure, you'll find pockets, but you'll find a lot of quote-unquote Roman Catholics in Europe, for example, to have really no Marian devotion at all. Uh, there wouldn't be any e- even reason to discuss Duluo and Latruo because they're not doing either one of them uh, for really anybody. So you, you get a wide range. But the point is that the that there have been three dogmas defined by Roman Catholicism over the past 170 years. Three. So here is, these are the examples that Rome gives to us of her self-claimed authority to violate Sola Scriptura, she rejects Sola Scriptura, and to define as dogma, de fide, by faith, the content of the faith. And so, you need to understand, a doctrine is something that, that can be taught, but does not necessarily bind the conscience. A de fide dogma binds the conscience. You must believe this. So when you encounter liberal Roman Catholics at Boston College, for example, who clearly do not believe in the infallibility of the Pope, they do not believe in the Immaculate Conception, they do not believe in the bodily assumption, they really don't believe in transubstantiation, they don't believe that a priest has sacerdotal authority to forgive sins, they don't believe in purgatory, these people are not, by Rome's own definition, true Roman Catholics. They're really not. And in fact, there's a, a strong stream within Roman Catholicism to say that they are de facto excommunicate. Whether the church gets around to doing it or not, they are, by their own rejection of these teachings, excommunicate from the church. That's why there are certain priests that will stand up to Joe Biden and these other leftist Democrats who claim to be Roman Catholics. Uh, well, wait a minute. Uh, that, that's not who I was thinking about. Who is the guy that... Um, it's one of, it was one of the candidates. Uh, there's, there, I think it was in New York where they went to Mass and the priest said, nope, and it was, it was over abortion. Uh, and the point is their argumentation is that you're excommunicate. You... By your actions, by your consistent support of the murder of unborn children, homosexuality, so on and so forth, you are excommunicate, so I, I will not give you. Biden in South Carolina. Okay, well, and I think it's happened to others in New York, because I remember something in New York. So I, th- I think it's happened multiple times. And you've got to give those rebel priests um, props for actually believing what they've been told to believe. I feel sorry for Roman Catholics. Today. I really do. When, when I first started uh, engaging Carl Keating and Jerry Mattix and Patrick Madrid and Mark Brumley uh, and eventually uh, others joined in, Staples came along later on, uh, Jimmy Aiken came along later on too, um, this, was, this was the 80s. And sure, it was post-Vatican II, so there's already a great deal of liberalism. But 
at least you still had a pope at that time that was a Roman Catholic. <laughs> uh, sure, once in a while he'd say something liberal, then he'd say something conservative. But but I feel, I, I there's a sense I feel sorry. Uh, I mentioned yesterday, not, not, no, the day for sometime this week, I mentioned the story about the Roman Catholic kid that gets kicked out of uh, of uh, government in his university because he says to his fellow Roman Catholics in a Roman Catholic chat thing, this is what the church teaches and we shouldn't promote something other than that. He was right. He was orthodox. Boom, he's out. And it was fellow Roman Catholics that ratted him out. So there's a sense in which you go, I, it was easier back in the days when I was debating folks where they actually believed uh, what it was that they were saying. And you could, you had a, here's, here's the dogmas of the church. But even back then, we did a debate at Boston College, and everybody knew. The vast majority of the people, I knew when I was there, that was 93, I knew when I was there that many of the priests that were attending were sitting there chuckling inside themselves that we were even having the debates we were having because they don't believe most of the stuff that we were arguing about. Um, so that's the situation that we're, that we're facing. Now, when we come to the Marian dogmas, then we have defined by faith. The last three dogmas defined by the Roman Catholic Church have been, in 1854, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. The Vatican I Council, 1870-ish, uh, defines the infallibility of the Pope. And in 1950, you have the last dogma that has been defined by Roman Catholicism, the bodily assumption of Mary. And of course, there are still people alive that, today that remember when that, uh, when that took place. So that's what would be considered living memory. So we can look at these dogmas and we can test Rome's claims. And the reality is when you test all three of these, you discover that what Rome is willing to bind upon the conscience of individuals today is something that no person attending the Council of Nicaea would have had any concept of would have ever defined as being part of the gospel. Not a single one, not a single, including the two representatives from the Bishop of Rome, would never have even conceived, let alone did they believe or teach or preach or live in light of things that are now bound de fide as by faith a necessary element of the gospel. And don't have time to go back to it right now, but I encourage you to go back and listen to the debates we did with Jerry Maddox, especially that first one we did on the Marian dogmas, where he said, we have the exact same warrant to believe in the bodily assumption of Mary as we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's the authority of the church. It's the authority of the church. That is the fo- that, that's, that's, that's sola ecclesia. That, that is the only logical, functional option to sola scriptura is sola ecclesia and that's where he's coming from so the subject of the immaculate conception comes up because i think last week a video appeared 
um, on Facebook. And it was a video hosted by Sam Shamoon. And he had William Albrecht on. Now, William Albrecht and I, I think, did some... We, we had some type of debate at some point. Uh, I think it was an online thing. Back before online... There, there's... There's probably three debates, four debates going on online every single night anymore. It is, especially since the, the panic of, of 2020, the great shutdown of 2020, um, that has become the thing. It is now constant. Um, I'm not so sure about the quality of these debates, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I think it would better to have a little stricter controls than a lot of these debates have, but anyway. Uh, but it's become the big thing. And so there is just so much online stuff. If you, you could just, you don't, you don't need Netflix as long as you can get into YouTube. You, you could spend every night just watching, 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 watching all sorts of stuff that's going on right now. And this particular encounter was, uh, I don't know, it was about what, an hour and 40 minutes, something like that. I forget exactly how long it was. Um, and William Albrecht has done all sorts of online stuff, especially with Turretin Fan. I've lost track of how many encounters Turretin Fan has had with William Albrecht. And my recollection is that three of those have been on the subject of Immaculate Conception. I'm not sure how you do that more than once, but because church history ain't going to change um, uh, much during our lifetimes. Uh, but evidently, they've gone back and forth on this numerous times. And I, I've debated it more than once. I don't think I've debated the same person. Well, okay, I'll take that back. Jerry and I, the first debate we did on Long Island, um, on Long Island, was the Marian doctrines. And so we, we only we did four doctrines in one debate, and so it was really, really fast. And then later we did just one whole debate just on the Immaculate Conception. So that was a little bit different. But anyway... Um uh, basically you had about a I don't know, it was about a forty minute presentation from William Albrecht and then uh since it's on YouTube you can do the YouTube chat thing and you've you've got questions being asked. Uh there was no pushback, there was no um uh no there was no debate. It was just him presenting his position. Uh he did present it as De Fide Dogma. Um, he presented it as being the, well, I think he specifically said the unanimous view of the early church, which is just the opposite of what his own sources say. <laughs> and that's why it was such a shame there's no pushback. There's nobody who had the sources. I've got uh, Ludwig Ott sitting right here, and, uh, and Shoemaker, and uh, Carol, and uh, O'Carroll, as well as Carol. They're two different Carols. Uh, sitting over here. But there was no pushback. There was no challenging to anything he said. Uh, his material was extremely flawed, extremely flawed. And anyone who knows church history knows that. But it was just presented as, uh, and he's going to be, be back on uh, to make further presentations. So I wanted to um, talk about this subject to equip our current audience with what this dogma is and why no person who knows anything about church history or the Bible should ever believe it or would ever believe it 
if you just simply stood back and said, I'm going to examine the Bible and early church literature. Because this is a dogma that finds its origination with a British monk named Edmer at the beginning of the 12th century. That's where it started. That's where it started. That's, those are the facts, and that's agreed upon by almost all historians. It really is. You wouldn't, you wouldn't realize that listening to William Albrecht. But let's start with this, before I even get into the definition and stuff like that, because that is important. It is important that we understand this. If you think the Immaculate Conception has something to do with the virgin birth of Jesus, you're really confused. You need to understand. I, I would estimate... Hmm, I would estimate that 95% plus of non-Roman Catholics think the Immaculate Conception has to do with the virgin birth. That would be my guess, unless you're a former Roman Catholic. But I know I've, taught, I've run into many Roman Catholics, nominal Roman Catholics. I have no clue what the Immaculate Conception is either. So there you go. I mean, honestly, if I were to give a quiz right now to our regular audience, how well do you think you do? How, how much confidence do you have that you really understand what the concept of the Immaculate Conception is? Like I said, it's defined in, in Ephibelus Deus. That's the name of the papal pronouncement, the papal bull, um, from 1854. So you can find online. And you can, you can read it for yourself, including the anathema at the end if you reject it. So, as it was defined, this isn't a take-it-or-leave-it type thing. This isn't a, well, you know, it would be better if you believe this. No, you are anathematized if you do not believe this. The, 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 the papacy of 1854, what was the date on the... Papal Syllabus of Errors. Look up Papal Syllabus of Errors. I, I used to have the... It's very similar time frame. Uh, within a couple decades one way or the other. I think it's actually afterwards. Um, 18 what? It, 1864 or 54? 64. 64. So a decade later. Yeah, yeah. Um, so same time frame. Look up the Papal Syllabus of Errors. It is not ecumenical. It actually denounces religious freedom. But this was Rome at the time. This was non-postmodern, we are the one true church. Uh, that's right. That's within six years of papal infallibility So uh, uh, being pronounced. So height of hubris on Rome's part. Uh, but it's not ecumenical. And so when they anathematize anyone in 1854, who would question this, they mean the real anathema, not the new, modern, uh, Jimmy Akinized, uh, we can all still get along and, and be good brothers type stuff. No, that's, that's not what they believed then. And I know it's really common today not, not to be concerned about that. Let's just, you know, let's just talk about how we feel about it today. But for those who are concerned about truth, you want to truthfully understand what the original authors intended. So you can look up in Ephibelus Deus for yourself, read it for yourself, see what it says. Uh, and if you do, you will come to understand 
that what the dogma is about is about Mary. Now, what's interesting, you, and this actually came up in some of the questions that were asked, and, and one, one questioner was spot on. You cannot understand the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception if you do not understand the concept of original sin as enunciated by and taught by Augustine, which tells you something. Um, if you're going to say it goes all the way back to the Apostles, then those people saying that nobody before Augustine believed in original sin have a problem. And I know at least one individual who promotes both Ken Wilson and this stuff. <laughs> they don't fit. They don't. You can't do both of them. Because the whole driving force behind the concept of the Immaculate Conception of Mary is the concern about the concept of original sin. You have developing in church history, especially after the rise of the uh, Desert Fathers in Egypt, in late second, into the, really flourishing the third century, the Pillar Saints, people like them. You have a tremendous increase in Mariology and eventually Mariolatry with, that is concurrent with the development of the monastic movement and the concept of celibacy. So with that comes eventually the issues relating to the perpetual virginity of Mary and the sinlessness of Mary. Now, the issue of the perpetual virginity of Mary, which we've, again, we've gone over all these things down through the years, uh, but the perpetual virginity of Mary, one of the Marian dogmas, um, teaches that Mary did not lose her intact virginal, physical virginal state in the birth of Jesus, which is a fundamental denial of the Incarnation. If Jesus was not born as a man, then he wasn't the God-man. But if Mary remains a virgin, then Jesus beamed out of Mary. The first source that suggests anything like this is the Protevangelium of James, which is plainly Gnostic in its orientation. Plainly Gnostic. Not, this isn't, doesn't come from the apostles. You're not going to find anything about this in Scripture. It comes from outside the Bible and outside the faith, but is now a dogma within Roman Catholicism. Um, th that also is, therefore, why Rome denies, why Rome actually teaches that these grown men traveling around with Mary are either actually not her children at all, but are children of Joseph by a previous wife, or are cousins. Um, so the natural use of language that you would use when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. We know what a mother-in-law is, but we don't know what brothers are. We don't know what sisters are. Those words have to be redefined by a later 
doctrine and dogma. That's what you have in Roman Catholicism. That's why Rome denies sola scriptura. You would never come up with Rome's unique doctrines if you practice sola scriptura, if you actually just listen to what the apostles themselves said. It's not possible. They have to come up with some other source, and that other source is tradition, which is whatever Rome says it is. They can never tell you, here is tradition. It's whatever Rome says. And in fact, from an Orthodox perspective today, tradition now includes the Immaculate Conception, the Bodily Assumption, Papal Infallibility, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Even though nobody the first 500 years of the church ever even dreamed of any of it. But anyway, uh, that's why we have to do these things. So the Immaculate Conception, back to that. The Immaculate Conception is the idea that Mary, from the very first moment of her conception, is protected from the stain of original sin by a preemptive application of the grace and merit of the sacrifice of her son. So, there, there is a reason for the language. Because after hundreds of years of argumentation, the Dominicans and the Franciscans were beating each other up over this stuff. They had competing visions of Mary, where, where Mary would show up for one group and say she's immaculately conceived, and show up for the other group and say she wasn't. So, hey, you know, um, it's sort of helpful to have all these visions of Mary. Um, and, of course, if this was apostolic, why are all these people running around arguing about it? But church history has a way of messing with the nice, clean categories that Roman Catholic apologists like to come up with. Anyway, uh, when it was finally defined, it was defined with a recognition of what the key objections were. I'm going to give you a list eventually here. We're gonna, we are going to get around this eventually. Uh, you, you've got till 6 or 7 tonight, right? 10, 12. 10, 12. Okay, good. Um, hey, I, I, I took a picture outside his house this morning at 4.22 a.m. Um, cause I did, I did Inferno ride number one where I, I did a 50 mile ride this morning and it was, we set a new record for yesterday. It was 118 degrees uh, yesterday. So it was a hundred, it was still 102 at 1 AM. So it didn't drop into this, into the nineties and yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah. So I had, I had. I had decided that I was going to go by Rich's house and do a stalker picture uh, where, I'm, where I'm out. Yeah, I'm doing the, you know, thing. Ah, you know, uh, you're asleep. Ha ha. And, um, and I was the only person moving around uh, at, at that, that time in the morning. It was, it was fun. Uh, why did I say that? Um, see, you, we, 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 we totally fell off the thing there. See, you've got to stop. You've got to stop. I think you did. I'm. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna blame you for it. But uh, you know. Sorry. Um, yes. I. Yes. I. I know. Um, so the the immaculate conception is arguing. They they knew what the what I said was. I was gonna. I'm gonna give you a list of people who taught against the immaculate conception which included Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventura and just a huge number of people, popes and early church fathers and John Chrysostom and all these people had no concept. So they already knew what the objections were. 
So you word your, you, you phrase your, your, your statement, your wording, so as to get around the primary objections that you already know exist. And so the definition is put in such a way that it will allow you to explain, well, you know, Mary talks about God, her Savior. So there has to be some way for God to be Mary's Savior, even though Mary never experiences sin. And so the idea is that Mary, from the first moment of her conception, there's this application of the merits of Christ anticipatorily, applied to her so that she is supernaturally protected from the stain of original sin and hence is most fitting to be the mother of God, the one who gives birth to the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus. And so this is defined in 1854. So one of the illustrations that's been used to help you understand what this is all about, is the idea of a mud pit in the forest. And let's say a a traveler's walking along, and it's deep forest, and you, you turn a corner, and before you can stop or anything, there's a mud pit, there's nothing to grab onto, and you fall in. And, of course, you're now just covered in muck, and it's hard to get out, and, oh, it's, it's terrible to think about it. That's what happens to all of us with sin when we are born. Original sin. We fall in, we're now covered, we can never clean ourselves up. But what if as you're walking around that corner and your foot is in the air and you're about to fall in, someone reaches out and grabs you and keeps you from falling in the mud pit? That person would be your savior, even though you never fell in the mud to get muddy in the first place. See? So that's how Mary can say, God, my Savior. And Jesus can be called Mary's Savior, even though Mary never sinned. See how that works? Now, obviously, the idea that that's what Mary was saying when she said, God, my Savior, is so absurd that it's laughable. And everyone should see that. When you have to take the carefully worded constructions that have come from hundreds of years of theological battles, almost 2,000 years after Mary, and read them back into her words so that there is nothing in her context that would give you any basis for ever believing that that's what she meant. And then you sit there and go, yeah, that's what Mary meant. That is the very definition of eisegesis. It's laughably absurd, but that's what Rome will tell you. But you see, here's what happens. Because we don't know what the definition is, and we hear someone present something that's thought out. I mean, oh, okay, yeah, if the guy reaches out, keeps me from falling in, he would, yeah, be a savior. And that's enough to stop us from taking the next step and going, but would Mary have had that? What in the world in the context would make you think that that's what Mary was thinking. Mary literally had those categories that are defined by Rome in 1854 in her mind when she, when she says these things? That's absurd. Of 
course it's absurd. And when you buy that kind of absurdity, you can now no longer defend meaningfully any of the rest of the central doctrines of the Christian faith as far as history is concerned. Because if you're willing to do that level of cramming something in to church history and the, and the biblical text, aren't you doing that with the Trinity, resurrection, deity of Christ, all the rest of that stuff? You've just destroyed your own credibility. You just destroyed it. There are people doing that. And that's the problem. That's the problem. All right, so let's go ahead and show this. I need to get to this. We're never going to get this done. Um, I have a presentation here, and uh, this is what I used in uh, uh, 2010. So I figure it's still workable. I did correct three typographical errors <laughs> while going through it again. Uh, but uh, hopefully this will be useful to us. So as I was just saying, in Luke chapter 1, verses 46-47, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And so Rome has an... Ex- Rome, the, the entire set of Marian dogmas, um, the, the perpetual virginity of Mary, Mary as Theotokos, which initially was not about Mary. It was about Jesus. It was an affirmation that Jesus was a God-man at his birth. It was, it was Christological in orientation, not Mariological. That's changed. Um, you know, that, you know, the virgin birth of Jesus, then the, the sinlessness of Mary, uh, perpetual virginity of Mary, uh, then the definition of the Immaculate Conception, bodily assumption, and there are further dogmas that could be defined in the future. There is the 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 movement with millions of signatories to it to have the pope define mary as co-redemptrix co-mediatrix and advocate for the people of god that's another subject get to another, another point but rome builds upon the very small amount of data in the new testament about mary and there is there's only a few there's only, there's very few texts about mary very few texts about mary they will read Mary into other texts just because they need it. But every text about Mary will be filled to the brim with allegorical interpretation and everything else. Because you, you've got a huge edifice, you've got to find some type of foundation for it. You've got to find some type of foundation. So they know all the texts. And so as I said, Mary says, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, if we utilized the same exegesis that we use for the Trinity, the deity of Christ, person, Holy Spirit, resurrection, inspiration of Scripture, doctrine of atonement, all those things, if we use that same methodology here, we would not find in these words anything about Mary using the term Savior here in anything that is even remotely connected to the idea of a preemptive application, the merits of her son that protects her from original sin. But Rome doesn't do that and doesn't have to. Because one of the things that's illustrated by looking at all the Marian dogmas is the difference between sola scriptura and sola ecclesia. Between scripture as your ultimate authority and the church as your ultimate authority, with scripture being the church's playground to do with as she wishes. When you apply one set of exegetical standards to one text and a completely different set to another text, you really aren't showing much respect for the Word of God. And that's what Rome does. 
in these texts. That's that's very very clear. Doop doop. I'm not sure why this is not uh, allowing me to go to the next. <laughs> Well, if I hit play, it's going to... I don't know what... Uh, this was working just fine uh, before. All right. I'm going to have to do this. All right. Okay, I have to do it like that. Uh, it won't let, me, uh, won't let me do anything else for some reason all of a sudden, so we'll just have to... Zoom in on that if you can, and uh, cut out the uh, stuff on the side. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Now, this is absolutely central to the Roman Catholic dogma and definition of the Immaculate Conception. You may say, really? What could there be that would be central to that? And the answer is the greeting of the angel. The greeting of the angel. Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, that is in Greek, kais elthon pras autain ipen. So the angel enters in saying to her, Kaira, kakarta mene, hakurias metasu. So, Kaira, greetings, kakarta mene, favored one, hakurias metasu, the Lord is with you. It is astonishing the claims that are made for the meaning of Kakaratomene. But as I said, Rome is forced by definition to read into this text a tremendous volume of information. A tremendous volume of information. So that every defender of the concept of the Immaculate Conception will tell you that what Kakartomene communicates is the idea that Mary has always been full of grace, fully graced, and hence could never have been under the influence of sin, and hence was immaculately conceived. So an angelic greeting in Luke is presented as the foundation. Now, they, they admit the Bible's not specifically trying to teach this, but this is the assertion that is, that is being made. Are we stuck with that up there, or, or I'm, I'm confused? Um, yeah. So... The problem is that that is not... Oh, how did that happen? Um, 
The problem is that that's not what Kakarotu Mene means. When you... How do, we, how do we put this in a respectful manner? Uh, let's keep, keep one thing in mind when we are comparing interpretive methodologies here. As we're going to see in a little while, the very statement of Rome is that this that they are defining is what the church has always believed. And so I can allow early church fathers to be early church fathers. A Roman Catholic cannot. They are told what to find in the early sources, and that ends up being the same thing with the Scripture. So when you are told that this is what you're going to find in Scripture and in tradition, then that's what you find in Scripture and tradition. That's not doing exegesis. That's the same thing the Mormons do or Jehovah's Witnesses do or anybody else. You have your you already have your determined conclusion and you just go find it. And so when you ask the question, well, what what about this word means that Mary has been sinless since conception? Well, it can't be the root, which is karatao. It can't be the root karatao. Um Carl Keating, for example, and William Albrecht repeated a lot of this material. Carl Keating had alleged years ago, the Greek indicates a perfection of grace. A perfection of grace. Um, why? Why is that the case? Well, when you look at the very word itself, karatao, you will not find anywhere in lexical sources the meaning of sinlessness. It's, it's not there. It is to be favored by God, or the very favor of God. I mean, charis is the root. That's grace. God's grace, God's favor. And so, none of them say that this refers to sinlessness. The only other occurrence of karatao so an Omicron contract verb, karatao, is that Ephesians 1.6. And Ephesians 1.6 says, To the praise, the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, literally karataoed on us, in the beloved one. In the beloved one. That is in Christ. So who is karataoed? The elect. The elect receive grace from God in Christ. Do we receive sinlessness? We'll receive his righteousness. But it doesn't mean that we are sinless. It has nothing to do with sinlessness. It has to do with the favor of God. The elect received the favor of God in Christ Jesus. Mary was blessed by God to be chosen to be the mother of the Messiah has nothing to do with sinlessness. It has nothing to do with perfections of graces. Nothing to do with it at all. So, it can't come from karatao. So, where does it come from? Well, it's a participle, you see. <laughs> and I love... I, I just... Very few 
of the Roman Catholic apologists with whom I have in, uh, engaged were actually able to translate the Greek New Testament, actually able to read it with any level of facility whatsoever, let alone explain its um, grammar and syntax and, and issues like that. And so when you hear people talking about, well, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect participle, and so, you know, that means that it's, it, this, this action of grace has been completed uh, in the past, and that's why she's never been under the dominion of sin and things like that. Now, remember, never been under the dominion of sin, that's your later theology being read back into this. We're trying to find what the source of it is. And is an angelic greeting to Mary announcing to her that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, is that sufficient to demonstrate that that was what was being communicated? The problem is that if you want to utilize this type of participial argument, the results don't work real well. Um, Because a perfect passive participle is used in Matthew 25, 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Hmm. So, if the use of that form of a participle means it's always been that way in the life of the individual, that means that for Christians, we could, we could now make the argument that the, the blessing of God has been ours from the time of our conception. And so we're immaculately conceived too, right? Because, I mean, that would be a blessing. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God. So, obviously, God loves that which is sinless, and therefore we've been immaculately conceived because we've been loved by God from the beginning, right? I mean, it's fitting, and that's what this is. It's a fittingness argument, which can be used to prove anything, as we will point out later on. Uh, Second Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Mm, okay? So, neither the meaning of the word, nor the form of the word. Actually, and this was something that Albrecht said multiple times. He said, well, the Greek proves. He actually seemed to indicate that he can actually read Greek. I'd like to know where he has taught Greek. I'd like to know if he's published anything that demonstrates his facility in the language. Um, um, Maybe publish some studies of perfect passive participles and their utilization in the New Testament, outside the New Testament. Maybe using the Thars, Linga Greki uh, resources, stuff like that. I'd be interested in seeing any of that. I've not seen any of that from him. Um, but the reality is that what we have here, utilizing the same kind of hermeneutics and interpretation that we would use in talking about anything else, is the angel says, greetings, you are favored by God, the Lord is with you. And in verse 30, he's going to say the same thing again without any of the grace stuff. Um, and that's all there is. There's, there's absolutely nothing in the text 
that would tell us, oh, look at look at this. This is actually a huge dogma here. No, there's there's nothing there whatsoever about any of that. Now, it's also extremely important to understand the protevangelium. The protevangelium. The protevangelium, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Genesis chapter 3. There is a problem in the Latin Vulgate. There is a mistranslation. Yes, Jerome was actually fallible. Well, and his transmitters were also fallible. In the Vulgate, you have ipsa cantaret caput tuum, the feminine form. The new Vulgate says ipsum, the masculine. But the statement in Ephibalus Deus that defines this as a dogma is in error in its understanding of the Vulgate and takes it as the feminine, she. The result of this is fascinating. Look at this. Now, Ludwig Ott, here's Ludwig Ott, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, Ludwig Ott, right here. Um, Ludwig Ott was called the great Ludwig Ott by Mr. Albrecht at least three times, maybe more during the course of the presentation he made. The great Ludwig Ott. The great Ludwig Ott says, the bull does not give any authentic explanation of the passage. It must also be observed that the infallibility of the papal doctrine, doctrinal decision extends only to the dogma as such and not to the reasons given as leading up to the dogma. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what is being said here. Papal infallibility is one of the most useless creations of the fevered mind of man I've ever seen. And I say that having debated it a number of times with Roman Catholic apologists who gave completely different presentations as to why it's true. Contradictory presentations. And they could do it because it doesn't mean anything. Papal infallibility means that... If the Pope was right, he was infallible, and if he was wrong, he wasn't. <laughs> so you can never know. You can never know whether what the Pope is saying is infallible or not. But here you discover the Pope can be wrong about the scripture he's interpreting. And you can say the bowl does not give any authentic explanation of the passage. Of course it does. Would the Pope have agreed with this? No, but the Pope's dead. So now we can go, yeah, he was wrong about that. It's sort of like Sixtus, his infallible Vulgate. You know, the the Pope came up with an infallible Vulgate, and no one uses it anymore because it was quite fallible. But at the time, the Pope thought it was infallible, so hey. But the bull does not give any authentic explanation of the passage. The Pope thought differently. It must also be observed that the infallibility of the papal doctrinal decision extends only to the dogma as such and not the reasons given as leading up to the dogma. So the Pope can give you his reasons, and you can say his reasons were fruit loops, but it's still infallible, because he's the Pope. I, I didn't write it. The great Ludwig Ott did. So the dogma was based upon a misunderstanding in Latin 
of the Protevangelium, which Roman Catholics recognize today, but it's still dogma. It's just like the papacy itself, built upon so many of the citations from the pseudo-Isidorian decretals, all recognized as fraudulent today, but the papacy still stands. Its foundation's gone. It's just hanging up there in space, but... Yeah. Ott admits the necessary interpretation of the Protevangelium found in Ephibelus Deus, quote, this is the great Ludwigat. I'm sorry, I need to... I, is that his title? I, I need to make sure we... The great Ludwigat says that the necessary interpretation of the Protevangelium found in Ephibelus Deus is not found in the writings of the majority of the fathers, among them the great teachers of the East and West. End quote. Um, Mr. Albrecht did not quote that part on the video. And in fact, anyone listening to that presentation by Mr. Albrecht would never, ever have come to the conclusion that Ludwig got it. Anybody listening to that would have thought, wow, everybody believed in this stuff. I mean, we, this, it's, it's early and it's universal. It's just, this is, everybody believed this. According to Ludwig Ott, it's not found in the writings of the majority of the fathers, among them the great teachers of the East and the West. That's right. It isn't. Luke 1.42. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Every Roman Catholic knows that one because it's repeated over and 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 over again in the uh, rosary, but I would point out that it says, Blessed are you, you log a mene su en gunaixin, amongst women, not above women. Amongst, not above. That's the meaning of the language. Next, we need to address the concept of suitability. This comes up in a lot of the Marian dogmas, but especially this one, bodily assumption as well. The concept of suitability and uh, uh, perpetual virginity, actually. Being eternally chosen by the Father to be the bride of the Holy Ghost, that's utilized in a lot of Marian uh, materials today, and the mother of the Son of God, it was eminently proper, eminently proper. Now, eminently proper does not mean founded on apostolic teaching. Just keep that. But, but this is the suitability. It was eminently proper that from the very beginning of her existence, she should be kept entirely exempt from contact with sin and the dominion of Satan. So it's, it's eminently proper. So if you listen to William Albrecht's presentation, you'll hear this over and over again. It's, it's, it's foundational to Roman Catholic teaching. Well, Obviously, obviously, Satan would not have dominion over her at any point in her life. Well, obviously, that should have been the same with her mother and father too, right? I mean, it's suitable. It's, it's eminently proper, right? Yeah, this is the suitability argument. Such arguments are vacuous. They prove nothing, as St. Bernard himself pointed out. And St. Bernard... Oh my goodness, is not a dog, by the way. St. Bernard is one of the most wild-eyed, fanatical Marian devotees ever. 
as St. Bernard himself pointed out, that it would then be fitting for Mary's mother to be immaculately conceived, and Mary's grandmother, etc. It would be fitting for Peter to be free of sin, and Paul, etc., and etc. And it would be perfectly fitting. Just think how fitting it would be for all of the apostles to have been immaculately conceived. I mean, there wouldn't have been any of the fights, and they, they would have been such better disciples. It's, it's, it's eminently suitable. But it's not an argument. Nor is it an argument in regards to Mary and her alleged suitability in that context either. But if we choose to apply... Now, here's what Tertullian said about this suitability-type argumentation in his own day. And this is in the second century. But if we choose to apply his principle so extravagantly and harshly... In our capricious imaginations, we may then make out God to have done anything we please, on the ground that it was not impossible for him to do it. We must not, however, because he is able to do all things, suppose that he has actually done what he has not done. But we must inquire whether he has really done it. So you can sit here and go, well, it would be suitable. It makes sense. I mean, why wouldn't God do this for Mary? That's not an argument. And even Tertullian recognized that. There's lots of things God could have done. That doesn't mean he did those things. You have to have a revelation from God to demonstrate whether he did or didn't. And Tertullian recognized that a long, long time ago. The great Ludwig Ott said, The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary is not explicitly revealed in Scripture. Neither the Greek nor the Latin fathers explicitly teach the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Ludwig Ott, pages 200 and 201. Again, if you listen to William Albrecht's presentation, you wouldn't get that idea. You heard a lot about Ott, you didn't hear these quotes. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary is not explicitly revealed in Scripture. Neither the Greek nor the Latin fathers explicitly teach the Immaculate Conception of Mary. I agree with Ludwig God. He's right. Well-known church historian J.N.D. Kelly listed such notables as Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Origen, who taught that Mary committed acts of personal sin. So, not only did they not give any evidence whatsoever in their writings, which are, especially in Origen's part, voluminous, of a belief in the Immaculate Conception, they didn't believe in the sinlessness of Mary. That would develop by the days of Augustine. Sinlessness, as in not committing personal sin, that's still different than not being in Adam in his fall. That's that. There's still... This is something that developed and took steps and steps and steps evolutionarily over literally 1,800 years until you have Ineffabellisteus. It's not apostolic. It's not biblical. It, it, it doesn't come from the apostles of Jesus. It doesn't come from inspired scripture. And yet men will bind it, as William Albrecht does, bind it on the consciousness of men. Because William Albrecht knows what de fide means. And a de fide dogma defines the gospel. A de fide dogma defines the gospel. Others who made reference directly to personal acts of sin on Mary's part included John Chrysostom, and I'm fairly certain, I could be wrong about this, but I'm fairly certain 
that Chrysostom's name was brought up by Albrecht as one teaching that Mary was immaculate. I'm not sure I'd be happy that could be if he likewise said that she, uh, at the wedding in Canaan, Galilee, and then when she and her sons uh, came to get Jesus. Remember, they're staying outside and thought he was mad. Um, he indicated these were failures on her part. Cyril of Alexandria and Basil of Caesarea. None had the slightest idea of the Immaculate Conception. And simply using the term immaculate or holy or pure does not mean the same thing as the Immaculate Conception. That was one of the obvious things that came up over and over again. Augustine, and this was interesting because I mentioned earlier, uh, my opponent in the debate in 2010 brought up a, a fake Augustine quote. So you got to be careful about stuff like that. Augustine exempted Mary from acts of personal sin, but not from the stain of original sin. Pelagius, the heretic, exempted Mary and many others from the stain of original sin. Augustine said Mary died due to inherited sin. Sermo 2 on Psalm 34. Augustine said Mary died due to inherited sin. Augustine spoke of Mary receiving the grace of regeneration in the incompleted work Contra Julian. He likewise taught that Christ alone was sinless. His influence had to be overcome during the intervening 1,400 years before Ineffabilis Deus could see the light of day. It was primarily Augustine's influence that had to be overcome. The greatest testimony against their own position is a truly universal early tradition of the church, which Rome impudently rejects. The fact that we could spend the rest of the night reading the testimonies of the early fathers to one truth, God alone in Christ is sinless. That is repeated over and over and over and over again without the necessary codicil that a modern Roman Catholic would have to give in regards to Mary. No one back then even thought it was necessary to have to add that little thing in because it wasn't being taught, as the great Ludwig Ott emphasized. At least seven bishops of Rome taught that Mary was conceived in sin. These are Leo I, Gregory I, Innocent III, Galatius I, Innocent V, John XXII, and Clement VI. And you might say, well, why aren't there more? How many of them would necessarily even be addressing something that would be relevant to this? Now, I'll tell you what the response is immediately. Those are not infallible statements. Doesn't matter what it demonstrates is this is a later development. It is not the universal faith of the church. It is not apostolic. It is not some tradition that can be t traced back to the apostles. It is a development of doctrine that came out of other doctrines, that came out of other doctrines, many of which did not have their source, such as the perpetual Virginia of Mary, even in inspired scripture, but instead Gnostic sources were the source of those things. And in fact, it's interesting that clearly some of the influence on the Quran comes from the same Gnostic sources that then produce these Marian dogmas. Might want to look for consistency on that. 
For centuries, Rome left the matter undecided, and great debates took place over the topic. The Dominicans and the Franciscans fought viciously over it. Well, why? I thought it was apostolic. Why would there be fighting over it in this way, right? St. Brigitte had a vision of Mary supporting Immaculate Conception. While St. Catherine of Siena prophesied for the Dominicans that Mary was sanctified three hours after conception. <laughs> well, three hours? <laughs> why? What's that all about? Uh, why, why even? So you've got saints and visions and stuff like that going on. And the Franciscans and the Dominicans duking it out behind the uh, monastery. And Ephibelus Deus contains two fundamental errors that require its rejection by any truth-loving person. The error regarding Genesis 3.15 is fundamental. We already looked at that. But it further states, quote, This doctrine always existed in the church as a doctrine that has been received from our ancestors and that has been stamped with the character of revealed doctrine, end quote. I didn't write it. Rome did. And those are lies. They're just untrue. They're absolutely untrue. It did not always exist in the church. Even Ott admits that. The great Ott. Receive from our ancestors. Well, if you want to make your ancestors 100 years earlier, okay, that's not what it means. And that has been stamped with the character of revealed doctrine. If it's not taught by the apostles, it's not revealed doctrine. But this is where we really begin to, to, to recognize that these three dogmas, immaculate conception, papal infallibility, bodily assumption, do demonstrate that functionally Rome does not have a closed canon. This requires new revelation. That's why you deny Sola Scriptura, because you don't believe in Sola Scriptura, because you don't believe what the Scripture teaches. Pius IX, in his letter, Ubi Primum, February 2nd, 1849, so five years before him, is asking the bishops of the world whether he should define the Immaculate Conception. Here's what he says. Great indeed is our trust in Mary, the resplendent glory of her merits, far exceeding all the choirs of angels, elevates her to the very steps of the throne of God. Her foot has crushed the head of Satan. Whoa, wait a minute. Um, that's the misunderstanding of Genesis 3.15? That's the error of the Vulgate at Genesis 3.15? That's what the great Ludwig Ott says, we don't have to accept this, but this is the Bishop of Rome writing to the bishops. And he's in error. Just, just, so, we, just so we're following where this really came from. This didn't get read by William Albrecht in the presentation, by the way, just say in passing. Set up between Christ and his church, Mary, ever lovable and full of grace, always has delivered the Christian people from the greatest calamities and from the snares and assaults of all their enemies, ever rescuing them from ruin. The foundation of all our confidence, as you know well, venerable brethren, is found in the blessed Virgin Mary. For God has committed to Mary the treasury of all good things, in order that everyone may know that through her are obtained every hope 
every grace and all salvation. For this is his will that we obtain everything through Mary. Do you really think, do you really think that this man was looking at history and scripture in any type of truthful fashion? If, my friend, if you can't see the difference between that kind of Marian idolatry and the apostles of Jesus, you have no discernment whatsoever. None. None. Even with that letter, there were some who said, no, I don't think you should. The Archbishop of Paris, Sibor, recognized the damage such a definition would do, for he knew it, quote, could be proved neither from the scriptures nor from tradition, and to which reason and science raised insoluble or at least inextricable difficulties, end quote. There were some who said no, just as there were, just as, as John Henry Cardinal Newman opposed papal infallibility until it was defined, then he bowed to it. Um, there were those at the time said, scriptures in our tradition teach it. Ott said scriptures in our tradition explicitly teach it. Now you have to use explicitly because you want to leave room for the implicitly part. Philip Schaff, the dogma of the sinlessness of Mary is also uncatholic. It lacks every one of the three marks of true Catholicity, according to the canon of Vincent Lirinensis, Vincent of Liron, Lyon, which is professedly recognized by Rome herself. So you've heard people talk about the Semper, the Ubicu, and the uh, Ab Omnibus. So if it's been believed always and by everyone everywhere. So not just in one area by everybody and at all periods of time in the church. So this is sort of a canon that some people utilize. And Schaff is saying, it fails all three. And instead of a unanimous consent of the fathers in its favor, there is a unanimous silence or even protest of the fathers against it. For more than 10 centuries after the apostles, it was not dreamed of, and when first broached as a pious opinion, it was strenuously opposed and continued to be opposed till 1854 by many of the greatest saints and divines of the Roman Catholic Church, including St. Bernard. And like I said, this guy, the stuff he said about Mary will curl your hair, but he opposed it. And St. Thomas Aquinas and several popes. Creeds of Christendom 1, 129. Even the medieval church stood opposed to the specific doctrine dogmatized by Rome in 1854. Bernard of Clairvaux rejected the view, saying it was contrary to tradition and damaged the dignity of Jesus Christ, the only sinless one. He asked of those who were beginning to promote the idea, whence they discovered such a hidden fact, on the same ground they might appoint festivals for the conception of the parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents of Mary, and so on, without end. 
The same ground was taken substantially by the greatest schoolmen in the Middle Ages till the beginning of the 14th century. Anselm of Canterbury, who closely followed Augustine. Peter the Lombard, the master of sentences. Alexander of Hales, the irrefragable doctor. St. Bonaventura, the seraphic doctor. Albertus Magnus, the wonderful doctor. St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor. And the very champion of orthodoxy, followed by the whole school of Thomas and the order of the Dominicans. Likewise, if Mary had been conceived without original sin, Aquinas says... She would not have had to be redeemed by Christ, and so Christ would not be the universal redeemer of men, which detracts from his dignity. Accordingly, we must hold that she was conceived with original sin, but was cleansed from it in some special way. So, Aquinas has a thoroughly unbiblical view of Mary, which he's already inherited from those before us, but he still wasn't to that point. The point is, what you need to recognize historically, the Roman Catholicism of the Reformation was closer to the truth than the Roman Catholicism today. That's why there's lots of discussion about what the, the Reformers and Mary and stuff like that. They didn't say much about Mary in regards to Rome, because this stuff had not... This is hundreds of years later. This is further development away from the truth that comes even much later. After the time of the Reformers. The concept first arises in the dogmatic form bound upon the consciences of Roman Catholics today. At the beginning of the 12th century, in the teachings of a British monk named Edmer. Edmer. You want to know where the Immaculate Conception, as defined dogmatically as a dogma that you must believe, it's part of the gospel, came from a British monk named Edmer. I'm never going to believe anything defined by someone named Edmer. I'm, that's just just a commitment that I'm, I, I made a long time ago. It's well, it, well, the British parts definitely. Yeah, if a Scottish monk named McAllister, that would be a lot better. But a British monk named Edmer, I mean, really seriously, who proposed the passive immaculate conception of Mary, free from original sin. His views were rejected by Saint Bernard, Peter Lombard, and Aquinas. He used the argument, God could do it, he ought to do it, and therefore he did it. The suitability argument. God could do it, he ought to do it, and therefore he did it. Which again, is the argument for anything. You can prove anything from that. Hence... Here's an F of Alistaeus. Let me quote. Here is the dogmatic decree of the church. This is what William Albrecht defends. He better defend it. I would have no respect for him if he didn't defend this. This is what he's defending. Hence, if anyone shall dare, which God forbid, to think otherwise than as has been defined by us, let him know and understand that he is condemned by his own judgment that he has suffered shipwreck in the faith, that he has separated from the unity of the church, and that furthermore, by his own action, he incurs the penalties established by law if he should dare to express in words or by writing or by any other outward means the errors he thinks in his heart. Do you think... Now remember... Ten years later, papers, papal syllabus of, late, of, of errors. Look that up. Read it. They mean every syllable of what's written here. This isn't, this isn't the postmodern 
there's nothing there's no room in here for the wishy-washy ecumenical postmodernism of today. Rome meant this. Rome meant this. So let's summarize. Since we've already gone for an hour and 35 minutes, uh, let's summarize. The concept of the sinlessness and immaculate conception of Mary is utterly foreign to the inspired scriptures, the foundation of the Christian faith. This is not something even the great Ludwig Ott admits it is not taught explicitly. There is zero reason, none, to believe on the basis of inspired scripture that the apostles taught that this was true, that this had been passed on to them by the Lord Jesus, by Mary, by the Spirit of God, that this was a part of the deposit of faith, this is what had been delivered orally to the church at Thessalonica, separately from what is written. None of those categories. There is no reason to believe anywhere that anyone had ever even dreamed of this stuff in the first century, the time of the apostles. It's simply unbiblical. And the Protevangelium, again, misunderstood, misapplied, misinterpreted, foundational to the erroneous interpretation given by in Ephibelus Deus. The dogmatic concept of the Immaculate Conception is unknown to the first thousand years of church history and stands inalterably opposed to its constant witness to the uniqueness of Christ as alone without sin. It is part of Rome's purposeful attempt to parallel in Mary the unique offices of Jesus. There's no question of this. The only way someone will respond to this is to try to not provide any meaningful direct citations that where someone's actually talking about Mary's conception, where they're actually addressing the subject. What you do is you look for words. Well, someone called Mary Immaculate, so it must mean that. No, it doesn't mean that. Mary was given a highly exalted position, no question about it, even much higher than what the New Testament gives her. And pointing out that... Protestants do tend to ignore Mary is not a counter-argument, because that's a truism. But the reason is because of this kind of absurd exaltation of Mary to the cost of the singular glory of Jesus. Even when the concept does appear, it is opposed by the vast majority of learned writers and is only promoted through religious zeal and factional infighting. Its final definition shows Rome is not bound by either scripture or tradition. Because, think about it, the last three dogmas, immaculate conception, fallibility of the Pope, bodily assumption, are any of them taught by scripture? Are any of them part of the tradition of the church of the first 500 years? No. No. And the only way that Rome has to try to shoehorn any of them into that time period is to absolutely abuse the sources they use. But they have to. They're told by Rome, this has been the constant faith of the church. That's why I say, we can let the early church fathers be the early church fathers, and we can disagree with them. But when the Roman Catholic, to be faithful, is told, you will find this in Scripture, you will find this in the early fathers, they're just doing what they've been told to do. 
by binding this man-made, unbiblical, ahistorical dogma upon the consciences of men, Rome has forever separated herself from those who follow Christ, his apostles, and the gospel they proclaim to the world. Remember, this is not an optional thing. This is not an optional thing. When you define something de fide, that's a dividing line. And you can, you can get all the warm ecumenical fuzzies you want. That does not change the fact this is a dividing line. If Paul anathematized the Judaizers for adding one thing to the gospel, think of all the things that Rome has added to the gospel. What's your ultimate authority? What's your real foundation? That's really the question. That's really the question. So I hope this has been helpful to you. Um, I am thinking about, didn't have time today, but I'm thinking about uh, queuing up a couple of the statements uh, that were made, though we covered a lot of them already, um, on specific assertions. We'll, we'll, We'll see. But given that William Albrecht says the great Ludwig Gott, and I quoted the great Ludwig Gott over and over again on the issue. Um, Ott does seem to be very much in line with Carol, O'Carroll, and others in the pile of books over here. Uh, by the way, you can bring my background down there. That's a pretty Windows background, but um, hopefully that is useful to everybody. Let me just conclude with this. What does this communicate to us? Sola Scriptura is not just simply something that you have debates about on Facebook or on YouTube. It determines what you're going to believe. If you're going to believe the doctrine of the Trinity, you better believe in Sola Scriptura. Because if you reject Sola Scriptura and say the doctrine of the Trinity is defined by external authority, then you're going to have to accept all the other things those external authorities tell you. Even when they become... Well, let's just put it this way. If you're playing around, if you're playing footsie with Rome, look at the current Pope. What could he define tomorrow? What could he teach tomorrow? He's clearly a universalist plainly a universalist. What about the next pope? Francis has done to the College of Cardinals what the Democrats want to do to the Supreme Court. Packed it. With his acolytes. And they are not conservatives by any stretch of the imagination. So when that white smoke goes up next time, either when Francis... Could you imagine if Francis retired like like Ratzinger did could you imagine three two of whom clearly don't disagree don't agree with one another on so many things and now you got somebody else to throw in oh I really hope that happens I I hope Francis decides to take a vacay and just uh, I've done this I've done this long enough let's you know that would be that would be really awesome and Ratzinger just hangs on out of spite. I think Ratzinger is pulling a, a uh, uh, what's the Supreme Court justice? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 
they look a lot alike when you think about it. <laughs> they, if, has anyone seen Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Cardinal Ratzinger in the same room at the same time is my question. I'm not... <laughs> I think I'm on to something. I think I'm on to something right here. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure either one of them is still naturally alive, actually. Um, but I, I think Ratzinger is just holding on for nastiness, uh, just just because he's so angry with what Francis has done. But uh, anyway, uh, if if that's your ultimate authority, what confidence can you really have that your grandchildren will believe the same things you believe? Yeah. See, I have perfect confidence that my grandchildren will believe the same things that I believe. You know why? Because this ain't changing anytime soon. Okay? And this is what the saints have had from the beginning. This is Theonoustos. Nothing else is. Nothing else is. This doesn't teach what Rome teaches. That's why Rome has to deny Sola Scriptura. And I feel for anybody who falls off this foundation. There is no firm foundation anyplace else. Nowhere else. Thanks for watching Dividing Line today. We'll be back next week, Lord willing. We'll see you then. God bless.